0: And so this morning, we're going to look at the book of Esther. We're going to do the whole book. This is something, actually, I think uh, in Israel today, they still celebrate a festival that occurs here in the book of Esther. And uh, they read the book of Esther, and they dress up in weird costumes. And uh, I know because I have friends that they're really excited about it, and they dress up in really weird costumes, and they think it's cool. Uh, and I'll let you decide if it's cool or not, but uh, they're into it. Um, so, it, this reading of the book of Esther is a good thing. We're going to read through it, and uh, as we start, I just, if you're not familiar with it, this is uh, a book in the Bible that never mentions God, never says the word God in it. He's not speaking to anybody, but it's very obvious that he's in control, and that's, I think, part of the message of the main point of the message of the book of Esther. Is uh, God superintending and all these things, even without necessarily being mentioned? So it doesn't really matter what these kings think or what they think is happening. God's, God's working. So, chapter one of the book of Esther. It came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. This was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. So he's king of the world. He's got quite an extensive reign. North Africa, all of the Middle East, all the way to India. In those days, King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel. And in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles, the princes of the provinces being before him. And he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, a 180 days and all, in all. So, for half of a year, just inviting all the leaders from the whole world to come and see how awesome he is. He's going to show off for six months. Everyone's, the whole kingdom's on a hiatus. We're just going to, I mean, he's conquered everybody. There's no dangers. We're just going to see how awesome I am for six months. So, I mean, how long would it take for you to do this? It wouldn't be six months, probably. You know, you'd be like, six minutes? I mean, like come over like, well, that was it. That was the show. The show's over, you know. Kind of like one of those fireworks you had last week, you know. Oh, wow, that wasn't worth $55. So, 180 days. Then we get his wealth in verse 5. When those days were completed, the king made a feast for seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan, the citadel, from great to small, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There was white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars. The couches were gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, and white and black marble. None of the stuff you can buy at Home Depot. All right. This is the, all these colors come from very exotic, uh, the colors that are the dyes are from exotic sea creatures takes a long time to collect, a long time to process. So he's showing off something. No, you can't see this anywhere else in the world. He's the only person who has this. So everybody's seeing his his glory. Verse 7, they were serving drinks in golden vessels. Each vessel was different from the others, with royal wine in abundance according to the generosity of the king. In accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory, for so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. So uh, those that would want to attribute men oppressing women to uh, biblical teaching and biblical order, this guy doesn't know the Bible at all, and the women are separate from the men. He's going to do a great job oppressing women, objectifying them, and uh, all on his own. So it's in the heart, evil heart of man where uh, the objectification of women comes from and the oppression of women. So what happens because they're drinking, seven days of drinking, verse 10, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, which means he's drunk, he commands these fellas that are named there, um, seven eunuchs who serve in this presence, to bring Queen Vashti before the king wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials because she was beautiful to behold. He's drunk, and with all the drunken men, he thinks I've got a beautiful wife. I want to show her off. Let's have her parade in front of these guys that are all drunk. Ladies, how would that make you feel? This is your husband come on out? We've been we've been drinking for seven days. Me and my buddies out in the garage. Why don't you put on your bathing suit and come on out? I like to show him how hot you are. It's disgusting. Honestly, it's disgusting. Okay, it's the objectification. She rightly, verse twelve, is offended. Verse 12, Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs and the king was furious. His anger burned within him. The king said to the wise men who were before him who understood the times, this was the king's manner toward all who knew the law and justice, those closest to him and their their names. Verse 14, seven princes of Persia. And he says in verse 15, what shall we do to Queen Vashti according to the law? Because she didn't obey the command of King Ahasuerus. that King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs. And then Mamukin, I guess that's how you say his name. I'm just hooked on phonics. So I don't know how you say his name. Mamukin answered before the king and the princes Queen Vashti's not only wronged the king, but also all the princes, all the people who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women, so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes. When they report King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, and she didn't come. This very day, the noble ladies of Persia and media will say to all the king's officials that they've heard of the behavior of the queen. It's like a Me Too movement. I'm not going to be objectified. I'm not going to be treated like this. This is horrible. I don't have to, you want to parade me in front of your drunken friends? Are you out of your mind? And then all the women will hear, yeah, you shouldn't be treated like a piece of property. You shouldn't be treated like a piece of meat. You're much more than that. Yeah, there would be a rebellion against this kind of behavior. Now, this has this is not a biblical culture. It's a culture that's happening in the Bible. It's identified, but this is a Persian culture, but also it's a Babylonian culture. Also, it's it's every culture. It's it's because of the wickedness of man to desire to oppress women. So this this official says. This is setting a bad precedent that a wife can have her own thoughts and not want to be treated in a disrespectful way. We can't have that. Can we, fellas? Let's memorize, men, memorize your verse. Wives, submit to your husbands. That's the only verse you need to know about marriage. But it's an evil that happens even in evangelical Christianity, where a woman is treated unfairly, unjustly, inappropriately. There's a much better verse for men to memorize, right, boys? (laughs) Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Did Jesus ever objectify his church? Does Jesus use people? Does Jesus ever take advantage of people? Does he parade people? No, love is patient and kind. It doesn't vaunt itself. It doesn't seek its own. There's nothing loving about this. So we can't let ourselves be influenced by the evil that's in our hearts. We need to be be conquered by the word of God. Jesus, the great liberator. But this is a... This is a behavior that we're going through and our culture has reacted to this. Very powerful men, very wealthy men treating women like they they can just be used. You could have a whole island and you could just parade out all the wealthy men to the island and they can do whatever they want with the women because the women are just pieces of meat. That's not anything new under this. That's a 2,500-year-old story. So this is the evil. It's, happy. it's evil. It's horrible. So this guy says, we need to deal with this because, you know, women are going to get the idea that they have rights, so we can't have that. So the king makes a decree, verse 21, this, this saying of the guy, please the king and all the princes, they say, yeah, can't go home and have my wife thinking she counts, <laughs> she matters, or she could say something. So they sent out a letter to everybody's language. And chapter 2, like usually stupid men, regret their stupid decisions he, he misses his wife chapter 2 verse 1 after these things the wrath of the king had subsided and his anger seemed like a great idea now he's not angry anymore now he's well what am i going to do i don't have my wife he remembered what she'd done and what he decreed against her and the king's servants then attended him they said let's let's get a new wife verse 2 let a let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king Let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan, the citadel, and all the women's quarters under the the custody of uh, the king's unit eunuch, and let the beauty preparations be given to them. And then let the young women who who please the king, whoever they choose, be queen instead of Vashti. And so the king said, let's do this. So they're going to have an international beauty contest, and the winner of it will become the queen of the empire. So this is also horrible, is gross, disgusting, but he has all the power, no one can stop him, and he's lonely, and he needs a replacement, so uh, we're introduced then to um, Mordecai in verse 5. There was a certain Jew named Mordecai, he'd been carried away uh, captive, he's there, and uh, his family had been carried away captive, now he's brought up in Persia, and verse 7, uh, Hadassah, that who's called Esther, who... Uh, is his i guess his niece his uncle's daughter uh she had didn't have father and mother the, she was very lovely and beautiful uh Mordecai had taken her up when her mother and father died she was as if she was his daughter, so the command went out, so Esther verse eight was then taken to the king's palace now, I don't think this is a beauty contest you want to be in your reward is to be married to this horrible person you know be now you can be objectified so Uh, it's not they have no rights they have no recourse so she goes in verse 9 but she uh, you know the custodian of the women she pleases him and and he gives her favor and he um, helps her and and she didn't reveal verse 10 that she um, was Jewish so Mordecai had told her not to do that and so every day verse 11 Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters so he's He has some kind of a role of semi-leadership. He's not really officially very high in the government, but he's got some kind of access around. So he's really worried about her, verse 11, her welfare, what's happening to her. And the young women's turn each came to go to King Ahasuerus after she completed the 12 months preparation, according to the regulations for the women. Thus were the days of their preparation of portions, six months of oil of myrrh, six months with perfume and preparations for beautifying women. So it's a one-year-long beauty treatment. They soak you in oil for six months and then soak you in perfume for six months. And then each woman, verse 13, each young woman went into the king. She was given whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarters to the king's palace. And in the evening she went, and in the morning she returned to the second house of of the women to the custody of the king's unit who kept the concubines. So what happens that night? He's testing out every single girl. He's having sex with every single girl. And then they'll be part of the harem, but only one gets to be the wife. So the, the there's, a, there's concubines. Concubines are the women that you have for pleasure. And then there's the wife. That's your official wife. So he tries them all out. All these beautiful women that they've taken, they're all going to end up in the harem. And so you go take your turn, and he has sex with you, and then he decides who he wants to have as his wife. So this is a... This is a serious thing. We would call this something like human trafficking, right? Maybe against your will, whether or not they found a beautiful woman, you're coming, you're part of the process. So um, it came Esther's turn, verse 15. She went in um, and she obtained favor in the sight of everyone who saw her. Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus in his royal palace in the 10th month the month of Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther more than all the other women. She obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the other virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther for all his officials and servants. And he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave the gifts according to the generosity of the king. So, He has the beauty contest. She wins a beauty contest. And so far, it doesn't seem like a really a great story. It's like, oh, how terrible for her. (laughs) She's put in this position. now. And now if you love money, if all you care about is money and clothes and those kinds, like, wow, wow, she's been lifted out of poverty. She's a refugee girl. Now she's in the palace. But if you're thinking of your dignity, your personality, your personhood, this is about as degrading of an experience as you could think of. He's going to treat her right, but how long? He treated Vashti right for a while until she did please him, and then she was discarded. So then we get this other event, the end of the chapter, verse 19 to 23. When the virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai was sitting in the king's gate. That's where the elders would sit. People could come there for uh, more simple judgments. Esther had not revealed her family or her people as Mordecai had charged her. Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai, as when she was brought up by him. And in those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, uh, doorkeepers, became furious. They sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the matter became known to Mordecai. He told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and they were both hanged on a gallows. It was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So this is all the backstory. She's in the she's in the palace and Mordecai hears about a plot reveals it and it gets written down in the record. So chapter 3 is where the uh the story really begins to unfold. Um, it's not it's not anything that you'd sign up, you know, we have kids that are planning on going away to college, right? They just graduated high school, what are you going to do? Your whole life's in front of you. I'm thinking about being in a harem. You know? Any girl, like I'm thinking about going and being taken into some dude's harem, <laughs> right? So is this, this, this is this is bad things happening by bad people, and now it's going to get worse. Chapter three. After these things, uh, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, and he advanced him and set his seat above all the, above all the princes that were with him. And the king, so he becomes prime minister, if you will. All the king's servants who were within the king's gate, they then bowed down and paid homage to Haman. The king had commanded concerning him, but Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. The king's servants who were in the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? It happened. When they spoke to him daily, he wouldn't listen to them. They told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew, so he's not going to bow down to men. And pay him homage, like, as if he's a deity or something. So, Haman saw that Mordecai didn't bow or pay homage. So, Haman was filled with wrath. And he disdained to lay holds on, hold on, lay hands on Mordecai alone. They told him of the people of Mordecai. So, instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. So, this guy has such an inflated ego that even though this individual he feels is disrespectful to him, rather than just go wipe that guy out, I'm going to kill all of his people. I'm going to commit genocide. That's how big I am in the whole kingdom. Like Remember, from India to North Africa, we're ruling over all of it. I'm prime minister. You're not bowing to me. Anybody who doesn't recognize my greatness, I will not only kill them, I will kill their people. Every man, woman, and child. This is a horrible story. Unbelievable. Evil and power. Genocide, though. You can look back and say, these people in olden times, they're terrible. How many genocides do we have in the 20th century? Attempts at genocide. A lot. So we've really come a long ways. It's in the evil heart of man. All the wickedness is in every generation because it's in the heart of the individual. And this man, very proud, very arrogant, sees this guy... And that, yet, at the same time, verse 7, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Pur, that is the lot, before Haman, to determine the day and the month. And it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. So he's superstitious as well. He's not... Supposedly he's a great leader, but he, to find out what he, when he's supposed to do it, he's got to get his magic eight ball out. What should I do? And he flips it over. Do it in 12 months? You know, like... So... uh the casting, is like reading the tea leaves. It's not like a logical decision. It's just superstition. So uh, he goes into the king, starting in verse 8. He sets his plot. This is very adept political manipulation of a corrupt man. He says in verse 8, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people or in the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from other people's. They don't keep the king's laws. Therefore, it's not fitting for the king to let them remain. Now, is that true? No, it's not true. Part of it's true. Like all good manipulation and lies, it's partially true. Are they different? Yeah. Do they have different laws? Yeah. Are are they a problem for you? No. They're not a problem. It's just a problem for his pride. He's not telling the story accurately. So he says, verse 9, If it please the king, let a decree be written that they should be destroyed. I'll pay... 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who would do the work to bring into the king's treasury. So let's kill them all and take all their stuff and I'll actually fund it. It's not gonna, you don't have to raise any money. We have to talk to, you know, the treasury department about this. I'll pay for it to wipe out all these people. So the king took his signet ring, verse 10, gave it to Haman. And he's called the enemy of the Jews. And the king said, well, the money and the people are given to you. Do with them as it seems good to you. And so the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month. The decree was written uh, to everyone according to what Haman commanded. All the officials all over the whole world. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with his ring. The letters, verse 13, were sent throughout all of the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews. This isn't the only time this happened in history. Uh megalomaniac wanting to take over the world and exterminate the Jews. This is a... Uh, repeated story happens more than once in history so this is the plan they're going to do it on a certain day on the 13th day of the 12th month and and then you can take all of their possessions and so the copy was sent and the king and haman sat down to drink and the city of shushan was perplexed like wait what we're commanding genocide against these people and really those that were in leadership that were in the gate what was the real reason behind this This guy won't bow down and you know pay homage to you as as if you're a deity. So you want to exterminate all these people? Like this is insanity. It's a government. It's 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 completely corrupt government. Completely evil people that have gotten into positions of power. They've created systems that oppress and uh, take away the dignity of people. And then they've got power to lie and deceive and then create policy to. To wipe people out. It's terrible. So you say, well, why is this book in the Bible? This is, this is a sad book. Well, this is why. Because Esther's in the palace already. Well, wait. You mean when she got taken and put in the harem and won the beauty contest? That was a terrible thing. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? But she's now in the palace. And remember old Mordecai overheard that plot and they wrote it down. And he actually never got rewarded for that. Not just sitting there in some old dusty history book, getting, getting old. And uh, Mordecai learns about what happened. Verse one of chapter four, he learned all that had happened and he tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and ashes. This would be a cultural expression of great mourning and grief. Uh sackcloth is a very itchy, you'd never wear this. It's a very uncomfortable garment. You're just showing that you're It's like his fasting and prayer and sackcloth and ash. Take the ashes, put them on your head. It's like you're showing that you're going through something so heavy. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate and no one would enter the king's gate uh, that was clothed with sackcloth. So he's, he's, you know, representing the people's grief. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So the, from, from India to Ethiopia, wherever there's Jewish people, they just found out they're dead, and their neighbors are gonna kill them. And it's not gonna be a foreign power, it's gonna be, hey, on this day, we're all gonna kill these people, and you can take every, anything. If you're envious of your Jewish neighbor and he's got something that you want, don't worry, on this day you can kill him and take it. And no one's going to, it's like not against the law. We just go kill them all and we'll have all their stuff. So Esther, uh, verse four, her maids and eunuchs came and told her and she was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai and to take his sackcloth away from him. He wouldn't accept it. She's not in a place where she can, she hasn't revealed she's Jewish. She's not put on sackcloth. She's a, she's a, a queen, She's the queen of the world. One of the king's eunuchs who had appointed to attend her, and she came and gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. So uh, he went out to Mordecai in the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that had happened. She didn't even know this policy had gone out. The sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews gave him a copy of the written decree uh, that he could show it to Esther and explain it to her, that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. So he came back and told Esther all the words of Mordecai. Verse ten. Esther then spoke to the messenger Hadith or Hafak, whatever his name is, and to go back and talk to Mordecai. And say, verse 11, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who's not been called, there's but one law. Put to death. Talk about a gatekeeper. You know, this guy's got a serious secretary. (laughs) You have an appointment? No. Kill him. (laughs) Like You show up and walk into the king's presence, you're dead. You know, you weren't summoned. You can't. It's It's his will, not anybody else's will. So... If you're not summoned, you can't talk to the king unless he shows you mercy. If he holds out the golden scepter, uh, then you'll live. And I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. So, this gives you a picture of her relationship with the king in the sense of he's got this massive uh, harem. I haven't seen my husband for, for a month. It's not because he's not in that. Like, she's a commodity, she, she's brought out, she's a trophy, she's something to showcase. And he sees her uh, as that. So she said, I'll get killed if I go in there. So verse 13, this is the famous statement of Mordecai in the book. Mordecai told uh, this answer to Esther. Don't think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. So if you to try to save your life, you're not going to save your life. And verse 14, if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the jews from another place that's an important theological principle it's one of the most important ones of all god doesn't need you esther you can be silent right now god's going to deliver his people why the messiah hasn't come there's promises there's tremendous promises yet to be over 300 prophecies about the messiah the jewish people are not going to be wiped out by this guy it's not possible God will raise up a deliver from somewhere else. God doesn't need you. That's always part of the process. If you're here, you're feeling burdened by something you think God's putting on you and it's heavy. You gotta remember, foundation stone that you lay in your foundation is God doesn't need you at all. At all. That that provides our humility for us. God, God might want to use me. He might be giving me an invitation to participate with him, but not because he needs me. And if I disobey and I don't do it, He'll 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 get it done. He doesn't he doesn't need us. So he tells her that. But verse fourteen and this goes along with it. This is not that's not exclusively all there is. But he says verse fourteen. But you, uh, you and your father's house will perish. But who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther, all these terrible things we read about in the first couple chapters, this evilness that happened in the 180-day feast and the the objectifying of women and this terrible treatment and all the corruption of the culture and the evil and and all of it. Maybe the Lord was, maybe it was the Lord. Maybe God was working. Who knows? That phrase, who knows? Who knows? Some people think they know pundits they're on tv there sunday morning has a bunch of political big heads you know they're at least the old days they'd be on the political shows on a sunday morning talking about what's going to happen who but who knows who knows especially when you're looking at this book does the king of the world understand what's happening actually he doesn't how about wicked Haman? he really doesn't know what's happening (laughs) he's about to find to find out what's happening But what about mordecai he doesn't know what about esther she doesn't know nobody knows except for the person in the book that's not mentioned the one who's superintending and taking everything that Satan meant for evil and he's turning it around for good. We have a whole different perspective as the followers of Jesus Christ to our trials because we don't understand them. Why did I get delayed? Why isn't this happening? Why did I lose this? Why can't I get evicted? Like, why, why are they putting me here? I should be over there. I'm, the, I'm way better than all these people and they should have put me and now I spend the rest of my career in this company being bitter that I wasn't put over here when actually God put me over here and I should be thankful. Maybe God wants to use me in a way that no one would have ever thought possible. If I have spiritual values, if I have worldly values, well, then I'm trapped. I'm a prisoner. Is Esther a victim in the story? The answer is yes. It's horrible. What about all the other women? All the women that didn't win the beauty contest that are now concubines. Not ever going to have their own family. Not ever going to raise their children. Not ever, you know. <laughs> what about them? They're victims. See, the world has the what's happening in the world. And then we're the people that God raises up out. And we say, wait a minute. God's working. Let's see what God's going to do in all of this. Who knows? Maybe you're in this place for such a time as this. It's a great statement in the book. So, Esther's great statement then comes in response, verse 16. God bless her for this. She says, well, go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. And don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. So first she says, let's fast and pray. Then secondly, I'm going for it. (laughs) I will go into the king. It's against the law. If I perish, I perish. So that's her response. Fast and pray for me. I'm going to go for it what have i got to lose you know let's just see what god's going to do so uh this is where then the story is unfolds now it's going to all happen it's going to just sort of fall out but it falls out in a weird way because she's a bit afraid she doesn't know exactly what she wants to do so first she says i need to have a banquet and uh she comes and sends gets a message to the king and and he holds out the golden scepter. She takes her chance, verses one and two. And she went and touched the top of the scepter. And the king said to her, what do you, what do you want, Queen Esther? What's your request? It's going to be given to you up to half of my kingdom. He, he loves her and uh, in some way. And so she says, well, verse four, she doesn't say anything about the policy. She just says, I want to have a royal dinner. <laughs> verse four, let, uh, let there be a banquet and let the king and Haman come to the banquet. And so the king said, all right, great, bring Haman. Let's do as Esther said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther prepared. And at the banquet, verse 6, the king says, well, what do you want? It's going to, I'll give you, what is it that you want? And verse 7, she said, well, here's what I want, verse 8. If I found favor in the sight of the king, if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to a banquet which I'll prepare for them, and tomorrow I'll tell you. Can any of you relate to this? Okay, I'm not picking on her. She's not here to defend herself. She's with the Lord. She's in heaven for a long time. Have you ever done this? Lord, I'm going for it. Uh Can we do this tomorrow? Uh... <laughs> well, God bless her, though. She went in, right? If I perish, I perish. She walked in. I'd like to invite you and Haman. She could have just asked him right there, like, this guy's made this policy. I'm Jewish. He's going to kill me. Like, let's have a banquet. And then they come to the banquet. What is it that you want? I want to have another banquet tomorrow. (laughs) Don't you love the heroes in the Bible? They're very realistic. They look just like us. You're like, well, she's a hero. She's awesome. So Haman, on his part, Well, he's pumped up. He thinks he's awesome. He went out that day, verse 9, with a glad heart. He's like, man, I'm a big deal. He saw Mordecai at the king's gate, and he didn't bow down before him, and it just ruined his day. This is the problem when you're so self... He's like a narcissist or whatever, you know? Like, he's so self-centered. Like, His days were on. What happened? That guy didn't bow down to me. Didn't you go out to lunch with the king? You're in the palace. He didn't bow down. Ah! Controlled by his anger. So he went to his house, uh, called for his friends, and he, look at verse 11, he told them all how rich he was how many kids he has, everything in which the king promoted him, how he's advanced him above all the other officials. He says, even the queen invited me to come in to a banquet. I'm invited back again tomorrow. But, verse 13, this means nothing to me as long as I see that Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. And his wife and his friend said, you know, you should make a gallows 50 cubits high, 75 feet high. Three times as high as the ceiling here. 75 feet high so that when you hang that dude, everybody in the whole place can see his body kicking in the wind as he dies. That's what happens to somebody who goes against you. You hang that dude and then go on to your banquet. And so Haman said, that's a great idea. So he made the gallows. So um, this is where you see God's hand. That night, so this is in between Banquet 1 and Banquet 2. The king can't sleep. Uh, he might be around my age. Just guessing. You know, you get to a certain age, you don't sleep that well. So he gets his audio book, puts his earphones in. Oh, I heard a laugh. That's getting close to home, a little, a little close to home with that analogy. Well, he can't sleep. He commanded them to bring a book of the records of the Chronicles because nothing puts you to sleep like history depends upon who's writing it, but like, just read me the record book and go right to sleep. So they're reading it just randomly. Now these, these Persians, the Assyrians, the Persians, the Babylonians, these guys, they wanted to keep, they, they were kings of the world. They thought they were kings of the world. So they wanted to like, keep records of how awesome they were. So they carved into stone their exploits and they, they created monuments with all these records of what they did and how great they were. And so they got a lot of history stuff. So they, they just find one randomly and they're reading it to him. And he's not asleep yet. And verse two, they get to the part we learned about earlier where Mordecai had warned about these doorkeepers that wanted to assassinate the king. The king is half asleep or trying to sleep, but he hears that. Verse 3, the, the story, just, yeah, he said this and, and that was it. So the king says, verse 3, Well, what honor or dignity was bestowed on Mordecai for this? Well, the king's servants, looking at the records, said, Well, nothing. Nothing's been done for him. So the king said, Well, who's in the court? Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he prepared for him. Now you're seeing God's hand. One of those coincidences, right? Divine appointments, we refer to them. So one of those things where who in the world could put this together. So he's coming in to say, I want a 75-foot-high platform to hang this dude. And the king's thinking, how do I honor the same person? So they say, Haman's outside. He goes, well, have him come in. Verse 6, uh, he asked Haman, and he asked him generally, like a rhetorical question, well, what should be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? And this is where his wicked mind is poisoned. Haman thought in his heart, who would the king delight to honor more than me? He's got to be talking about me. So what would I want? So he says, well, verse 7, The man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought which the king has worn. What does this guy want? Let a royal robe be brought that you have worn. Can you trust this guy if you're the king? What does he love more than anything himself? Power. He'll sacrifice anything for power. Let a royal robe be brought which the king has worn. A horse on which the king has ridden and has a royal crest placed on its head, let this robe and the horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, he may array the man with with whom on whom the king delights to honor, and then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. The king said to Haman, Great, hurry, take the robe and the horse which you've suggested, and do so for Mordecai the Jew who sits within the king's gate, leave nothing undone of all that you've spoken. Now you can just hear, uh uh-oh, what's happening? Haman took the robe and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Mordecai went back to the king's gate. Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. He told his wife, remember they said, build a gallows. They said, Mordecai... (laughs) And and they said to him, If Mordecai before whom you've begun to fall is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. And while they were still talking to him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. So even if she's too timid to say her request in the palace, in the throne room, or at banquet number one, it's actually, uh, come back tomorrow. Actually, come back tomorrow is perfect in God's timing. Isn't it interesting? What's thwarting God's timing in the story? Nothing. The evil of the culture? The evil of the rulers? The wealth? The power? Thwarting God at all? Actually, no. How about the timidity of the girl who's the hero in the story? That's stopping it? No, what about the this crazy strategic uh, mind of this Haman character who who's as shrewd as could be? How could you overcome those pictures? How could you overcome this, you know, how, how do you spin this in your own direction and hang on to your power? You know, we have people like that in our government. How do you overcome those things? Well, they're adept. They're amazing. Is that going to stop what God's doing? None of it can stop God. So they come to banquet number two after uh, after Haman's gone through this. So... What's your petition? He asked her after they starting to have their meal. Verse two, whatever. What do you want? Uh, I'll do it for you. So she said now she's going to tell Verse three, if I found favor in your sight, O king, if it please the king, let my life be given to me at my petition and my people at my request. We've been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated, Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. King Ahasuerus said, Who is he? And where is he who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. And Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. He's too mad to do anything. Just walked out of the room. Haman stood before Queen Esther, pleading for his life, when he saw, for he saw the evil was determined against him by the king. And when the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will you assault the queen while I'm in the house? And as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. And one of the eunuchs said to the king, look, there's a gallows, 50 cubits high, already made. Haman made it for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf at standing at the house of Haman. The king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, and then the king's wrath subsided. Well, it's not the end of the story because we have to deal with this decree that's now gone out and, and it's promoted the evil in all the land that the people now will be looking at the Jewish people as potential envy. You know that envy, selfish ambition, envy. There's disorder in every evil thing that's all been promoted. So, how do we deal with it? Esther. Uh, well, verse verse one, chapter. This is part of the the unwinding of Haman verse one says on that day Ahasuerus gave Esther the house of Haman the enemy of the Jews Mordecai came before the king Esther told him how he was related to her the king took off his signet ring which he'd taken from Haman he gave it to Mordecai Esther appointed appointed Mordecai over all the house of Haman Esther spoke again to the king and fell at his feet and implored him with tears to counteract the evil of Haman the Agagite and the scheme which he devised against the Jews, and the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther, and Esther arose and stood before the king, and she gave him the the plan of um please write a decree, you yourself, verse eight, concerning the Jews, and as you please in the king's name, seal it with the king's ring, wherever it's written that no one can revoke it. So they came in and they did it, and they sent it out, and they wrote it in the king's name. And, and verse 11, by these letters, the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and protect their lives. To defend themselves, essentially. To destroy, to kill, or to annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them. Their little children and women and to plunder their possessions. So, they undid it in the sense that, well, the Jews can defend themselves. So, now it's not looking like easy pick, not government-sponsored genocide. So... um They sent the message out. Mordecai, verse 15, went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel. He's got a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. The city is rejoicing. Remember, they were confused. They don't want to kill everybody. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness and a feast and a holiday. And many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jewish people fell upon them. So it happened, chapter 9, that uh, they were encouraged to protect themselves, so the people that still decided they wanted to fight them, Uh, the Jews defeated all of them, verse 5, they defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword. Uh, So in Shushan, verse 6, the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, so it was very small, uh, attacking, and uh, anybody that wanted to destroy them was destroyed, was was defeated, and then they make this feast, chapter nine, verse eighteen. Then they gathered together and they made this celebration, feasting and gladness. And um, Mordecai wrote letters to all the Jews and said, "Let's now make this a celebration annually." Verse twenty-one, on the fourteenth and fifteenth days of the month Adar, as on the days when the Jews had rest from their enemies, in the month when they turned from sorrow to joy, and so they celebrate this feast when when Haman had cast the lots. That's Pur, so it's called Purim. And uh, Esther came before the king. So they celebrate. Verse 26, they call the days Purim after the name Pur. And the Jews established it, celebrated Even to this day, they still celebrate it. And the, the end comes. Chapter 10, um, King Ahasuerus imposed tribute on all the land, all the islands of the sea, all the acts of his power, and his might, the account of the greatness of Mordecai, uh, to which the king advanced. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? So it's not really a biblical book in the sense. It's that's maybe why God's not mentioned because it seems like it's a history book that's part of the Persian record of what happened. Mordecai was second to the king, uh, great among the Jews, well received by the multitude for, of his brethren, seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. So. That's the book of Esther. Um, It's very important that we don't lose hope. Paul wrote to the Romans about having hope. Uh, He said that God intends through the scriptures to give us endurance, patience, and comfort. The scriptures coming to us come alongside and help us to keep having hope, to produce hope in us. The world that you're living in, the media in the world, knows that people, when they're stirred up and they feel afraid, they will click on their devices, on the ad, the article. Um, we, we have a phrase, we call it clickbait. The idea is getting you to click. And so fear is, is different than hope. But people get stirred up. Wait, what's this thing that the governor's doing? A Christian organization might be wanting to get more people clicking so they can get more ads so they can have more money, so they can reach more people. They know that fear will get people clicking and going to their website or going to their thing more than hope. People won't be motivated by hope. I mean, this is just human nature reality. Uh, there are, there are firms that you can hire. Some of you guys do this for a living. You know what I'm talking about? There are experts that you can hire and they'll analyze the wording of your heading and your email that goes out and they'll give you real-time data as you tweak it as the response of the people that are clicking on it. You can buy these email address blocks, millions of email addresses that are available. You guys have signed up for stuff and they've got your demographic and people can buy your contact information and then they carefully craft messages to sort of Get you into what they're doing so they can get your money, your interest, your you to respond. They think, well, and and let's just say in the best case scenario, what they're doing is right. They're doing it for the right reason. It's a terrible thing. They want to stop it. But the means by which we would try to accomplish that are are, are very detrimental to the body of Christ. God wants you to abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the patience and comfort of the scriptures. Paul says it twice in Romans 15, that through the patience and the comfort of the scriptures, you would have hope. And then he says, and that you would abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, when you read the book of Esther, there's parts of it where you think, this is as disgusting of a time in history as it could ever be. And then I look at it and I step back and I think, this kind of looks like our time. Very wealthy people, oppressing women, taking advantage of the beautiful ones, making them concubines to serve the lusts of a very wealthy, corrupt, evil, misogynist culture. Well, I live in that culture. <laughs> That's horrible. The frat boys, the wealthy, the, the ones that are in the positions of power at the universities. Right? I'm talking about the young men, the legacies that are in, that have been invited. They're part of these exclusive clubs on Ivy League campuses, and when the freshman girls come, what's going to happen in the fall at every frat party? This is what happens in in uh, the 180-day party in Esther chapter one. There's nothing new under the sun. Evil, evil in the evil. And you can look at all these things in human trafficking. There's the new movie about human trafficking that's out. The Holy Spirit wants you to have hope because even though all this stuff's happening in the book of Esther, when you get done, you think, that's a crazy story. That's amazing. You mean in between the banquets, the dude couldn't sleep (laughs) and they brought him in. They got, they got, what kind of a library do they have in Persia in the palace? Somebody grabbed me a history book. Well, bro, we got a lot. I'll just grab this one. They grab a scroll, they grab a cuneiform, whatever, how, whatever form it is, and they bring it out, and they go, Let's start reading it. And then they happen to grab the place where Mordecai, you know, who did a good deed for the king and never got rewarded for it. Aren't you glad that he didn't get rewarded back then? And they, well, what did we do for that guy? Well, you know, he saved your life, so we bought him a birthday cake, and, uh, and we sent him to Disney World, and he had a great two-week vacation, and, uh, we brought him up here. He greeted you like, okay, great. Keep reading. I got to go to the back to sleep. Nothing was done for him. No reward. You might be going through something in your life and say, I was treated unfairly. This was bad. They shouldn't do this for me. Who knows? Don't give up hope. God's not even mentioned in the book. It seems to, I mean, it's generally accepted that this book is probably in the Bible. It's a record from the pagans. <laughs> it's, it's told in the Persian court, probably under Mordecai's influence as he becomes very influential. But it's written in a format of like, this can just fit right in there on the volumes of the shelf of the Persian histories. This is part of the Persian history. It's part of the Jewish history. God's fingerprints are all over the thing. God says a couple things. We've been referring to this. I want to remind you till we all don't forget this. Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9. You guys know it. My thoughts are not your thoughts nor are my ways your ways. So when things are not going your way, that doesn't mean they're not going God's way. That just means you're not God, and we're all glad. Okay? You're wrong a lot of the time. In fact, personally, I'm wrong most of the time. (laughs) I'm so thankful I have a wife. Because between the two of us, we're wrong probably half the time. Like my, my, My average went way up. Between both of us, being wrong most of the time, my average went up. I'm actually less wrong now because there's two brains instead of one very faulty brain. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are your are not your thoughts. Well, I don't think it should happen like this. OK, well, your thoughts are not God's thoughts. But it, when I'm thinking about this, this should never. Of course, it should never happen. Chapter one should never happen. It should, this shouldn't something like this. This woman who says, I am not going to be paraded in front of your drunken friends. If, a listen, any wife in here, if your husband wants to do something like that, tell him no. <laughs> if he said, you're supposed to submit to me, say, no, I'm not. <laughs> not for that. I'm not going to. Right? Like, she gets booted. She's out. <laughs> she has no recourse. She has, there's nothing she can do. That's bad. That's evil. But God's working. As the heavens are higher than the earth. So my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's thinking and God's ways are unfolding and we just don't know it. They're unfolding all around us. Even in her fears, what am I supposed to do? Have a banquet. Uh, I don't have the nerve to say something. Come back tomorrow. I need to fast and pray. Come back tomorrow. That's my request. Let's have a Another, give me another try at it. I chickened out the first time. Yeah, even in that, because in between is when the record comes out about Mordecai. God takes the work of the enemy and turns it around. And the ultimate picture of that—this is why we can never lose hope. The ultimate picture—I mean, this is this is as poetic as it gets. This is as amazing as it is. Haman hung on his own gallows. There's something more amazing: Jesus' cross. You see, the cross was Satan's idea. Jesus was betrayed, an act of betrayal that's hard to fathom. A man who saw the dead rise, he saw lepers cleansed, a man who passed out the food when the 5,000 were fed. He literally watched the five loaves and two fish in the hands of Jesus turn into enough food to feed 5,000 men. And then later, 4,000, the second feeding of the multitude, the guy passed out the food. He saw Jesus walk on the water. He was in the boat when Jesus was asleep in the boat and they woke him up and he calmed the sea. He was at the grave of Lazarus when Jesus called a man who'd been dead for four days by name, called him out and the guy came back to life. This man saw all of those things. something was corrupt in his heart, he sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. The Bible says Satan entered his heart. The betrayal the mob the spitting the beard being ripped out the crucifixion it was all the devil's idea and what happened well we find out it was all god's idea he would be pierced his hands and feet would be pierced the lord would lay upon him the iniquity of us all you will not leave my soul in the grave you will not allow your holy one to see corruption it's all in the scripture. It was all written by God. But the devil was doing it. He was perpetuating this. It was him. And then Jesus was crucified and Haman is hanged on his own gallows. Let me remind you of what Paul said. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 11, speaking to the predominantly Gentile believers in Colossae. He says, in Jesus, in him, it's in Jesus, Colossians two eleven. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who who raised him from the dead. There's your baptism. There's a baptism verse, right? Your baptism, you're buried in faith. The old nature crucified with Jesus raised to walk. Why? Because Jesus died and was buried and he rose from the dead. You being, verse 13, you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he's made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. It was contrary to us. He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. God used the evil of the devil to take all of our evil and lay it upon Jesus. The evil that the devil was perpetrating did not stop the goodness of God in salvation because when Jesus was nailed to the cross all of our sins were nailed with Jesus. He's taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross verse 15 is the verse I wanted to get to and having disarmed principalities and powers he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it. In what's the it? The cross, the devil, the cross is the devil's idea. The gallows was Haman's idea. Well, you think like, well, was it actually? Actually, it was never for Mordecai. That was not where Mordecai was going to die ever. It was never where Mordecai was going to die. So does it matter who built it? Do not, do not give up hope. The scriptures and the Holy Spirit. Through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, you might have hope and that you would abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 15. It doesn't say Instagram. It doesn't say, you know, whatever your, you know, whatever your source of media is that's going to inspire hope. The hope comes from the patience and the comfort that are in the scriptures and you'll abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And especially if you're going through something maybe like early in the story where I did what was right and there's no reward. This is how I get treated. You got to wait till the story. You got to wait till the end of the book. You can't judge. You can't judge the book of Esther in chapter three. You can't judge the book of Esther in chapter two. You can't. I mean, you can judge it. You can go, this is terrible. (laughs) But you, you know what's happening until you get to the end when it happens. You cannot give up hope. Jesus... Disarmed the principalities and powers, and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. He set us free from our sins and destroyed the power of darkness. We we uh, we're, we have a much greater reality than what even the Book of Esther s- reveals. It's a powerful story. It's amazing. No wonder the Jewish people still celebrate it and you know read the book. And as a culture, to say, man, this is a great reminder to us. Like what of what God's working. So don't, don't as the days get darker and as people get more adept at trying to stir up fear, do not give in to fear. Don't believe in it. Don't fear. The fear of man is a snare, the Bible says. The fear of man's a snare. It's a trap. Abound in hope. Be the most hopeful person that anybody would ever meet. And someone say, say that I, you know, that's a terrible evil. But man, I'm praying. I know God's going to work. I don't know how God's going to turn around, but I guarantee you he's going to turn it around. You have to wait and see. God's going to turn it around. You wait and see. God loves every person in California so much. He doesn't want them to perish. He wants every single person saved. He's working. Yeah, but it's terrible. It's terrible. It's terrible. That's evil. That's evil. No doubt. But now let's wait and see what God's going to do. Don't don't give up hope. It's from the Lord. Hope's from the Lord. It's not going to come anywhere else comes from the Bible and the Holy Spirit. So if you don't have any, get in the Bible and ask the Holy Spirit to cause you to overflow with hope by his power. It's a supernatural gift of God. Lord, help us. I pray for uh, all of us. Lord, we're living in a strange time, and uh, we're still, the whole world really still processing. We're still in kind of a post-COVID hangover. The the economists, the politicians, the educators, the humanists, the atheists, the believers, everybody's trying to figure everything out. Lord, we we know you're not looking at it trying to figure it out. And we read the book of Esther, and we're trying to figure it out at the beginning. What in the world is happening in this crazy story? But then, Lord, you start to move. You start to change things. You start to intervene. You start to stir people up and change just supernaturally, create uh, openings and connections. Lord, you never fail. You've never failed anybody. Think of the three Hebrew children that were thrown in a fiery furnace and you never failed them. You didn't fail Esther. You're never going to fail us. And I pray, Lord, for if there's anybody here who's hopeless or in danger of being hopeless or maybe they've just been, just been eating at, uh, eating at the table of the world and the fear and the, just the overwhelmingness of the perspectives of just capturing Lord. We want to be captured by Jesus and filled with hope by the Spirit. So help us. Pour out your spirit on us. Lord if there if there's any of us that are losing our way, Lord, get us back on track. Remind us that you're working and don't let us give up. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Rich Chafin. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Rich's teaching ministry by visiting CCLC dot org.